Well, good morning. And if you have your Bibles, I ask you to turn over to Genesis 42. We're going to be working through three chapters, about three chapters today, but relax. I'm not going to read every verse for, but as we kind of work through that. I don't think that I have to convince you that we live in a world that's filled with fractured relationships. Isn't that true? For some, you don't have to look any farther than your own nuclear family. And you see it all around. Some, you may go out to your extended family and you find those fractured relationships. Others may look at the body of Christ and find fractured relationships. Look at our community, look at the American society as a whole. Would you not say there's a whole series of fractured relationships? And one of the things that gives us great hope in the gospel is reconciliation. And and I know when you look around, at times you say, there's no possible way that reconciliation can come between that individual and me or whatever that case may be. I mean, we, we all have these thoughts. You, you know what I'm saying? And it's true. If reconciliation is going to happen, it means two people must, must reconcile, correct? You, you can't have reconciliation just one side. It never works. Never works. And what, what I want you to notice today, we are going to be looking at a story It is the road to reconciliation. And a story and a group of individuals that you would have to pull back and say, no way can that happen. And what you're going to find is this. When you talk about reconciliation, you cannot merely talk about two individuals. You always have to talk about a third. God. Because when God is brought into the process, then you can begin to see reconciliation here in a way that you could only have imagined in the past. So as as we enter this story, I want you to watch for a couple things. I, I want you to watch the kind of pain that comes to people's lives who aren't reconciling. And and secondly, I want you to watch God work behind the scenes and directly in such a way that he brings the most unlikely together. In this story, I, uh, I like to kind of visual plot, visualize plot lines. It kind of helps me to, to think, like, how would you kind of plot out this story? And what you're going to notice is there, there, there's going to be two major scenes in this story where there's going to be an encounter between Joseph and his brothers. And that's going to happen in chapter 42. And then it's going to be about a year in between until you come to the next next scene, and we're going to have another encounter. And this one's really going to get bumpy, because it's going to go chapter 43, 44, and part of chapter 45. And it actually goes like this, and you go like, oh, it seems like it's turning out pretty good. And then it gets real bad, and then turns at the end. So I'm going to take you through a really bumpy ride. We're going to go like, whoa, not so good. 
huh, that kind of looks all right. Oh, boy, not real good. And, okay, so kind of watch for those bumps as we move through this story. Here's, here's the other thing I'd want to say. I hadn't really thought about this deeply until this week. James, I was thinking back to what you were speaking on last week. And I, I was just going back and kind of mulling this over my mind. So here's Joseph. Joseph was 17 years of age when he was sold by his brothers into slavery. The age of 30, 13 years later, he is put into the place of royalty right beside Pharaoh himself, directly under Pharaoh. Remember that? And for seven years, he is going to build one grain silo after storeroom and silo after another after another. So much so that Joseph says, I don't even know how much grain we're storing anymore. It's so much. Seven years. When we come to chapter 42... Joseph is about 38 years of age. It has been 20 years since he's seen his brothers. And here's something else. About age 36, during the good years when he's building those grain, that, that put the, the, the grain silos, the Bible tells us he has two boys, Ephraim and Manasseh. Do you remember what, it, what their names meant? God has caused me to forget all of the difficulty of Egypt. And then he says this, and my father's house. That was the part that really grabbed me. And then the other son, God has made me fruitful in the land of my suffering, Egypt. But frankly, as chapter 42 opens up, I don't think Joseph is sitting around saying, man, I can't wait like to get this reconciliation thing going with my brothers. I I, I don't see it. You know what I think Joseph has done? I think Joseph has moved on. As best you can move on in your thinking. God has made me forget. You know what? That's in the past. Here I am now. But God has another agenda, doesn't he? And so, at the age of 38, the year of famine has begun, and this is going to go for seven years. And in the midst of this famine, remember we said this first encounter, this first story with the bump that doesn't end so well? Listen to what happens here in chapter 42 and verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, why do you just keep looking at each other? <laughs> Boy, parents ever said that one before? We won't get into all that, but that's a pretty good line. Anyway, he continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. No problem. You know, it, this famine is extended beyond Egypt to Canaan and, and everywhere else. And so people are going down. So they go down with a whole group of people from Canaan. And, and we read this. Now, now uh, and the other thing that's really interesting is, side point, verse 4. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others because he was afraid that harm might come to him. 
So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was a famine in the land of Canaan also. So you see what's happening? Way up here in Canaan, some 250 miles away. Abraham, I'm not Abraham, Jacob sends his sons down, all but Benjamin, because Benjamin is the favored son. In his mind, Joseph is dead, and the only boy that's left from Rachel is Benjamin. So he's going to protect him, send the other boys, and then come on back up. And so they're thinking they're going to go down, they've got the money, they're going to make the payment, it's all going to be a nice deal. Verse 6. Now, Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all the people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. But he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where did you come from, he asked. Uh, from the land of Canaan, they replied, to, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. When I get to heaven, this is one of those questions I want to unpack a little bit more with Joseph. But you kind of get this idea that Joseph is moving on and then one day he looks out and it's his ten brothers. Now, not, not, not Benjamin. He knows them. They don't know him because they would never have expected him to be in that position. And they come down and they bow down to him. And what does he remember when they bow down? That dream. That dream where they would bow down to me as a ruler and all of a sudden, things begin to come together in his thinking. Do you see that? It's all, it's a moment of realization. But, but he's also reeling because he doesn't want to quickly say, hey, it's Joe. Because how will he ever know that they're not lying and faking him, right? I mean, you, you see the problem, don't you? So at least the only strategy he can think of off the top of his head in the moment, he says, hey, you guys are a bunch of spies. Oh, no, 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 we just want food. No, I, I think you're a bunch of spies. No, we, look, we have a father and, and, and actually another brother back home and, and another brother who, who passed away. We don't know what he's gone. But, and and then, then, there, then there's us and we, we, we just really want food. And, and Joseph says, Fine. What we're going to do is we're going to stick you in jail. One of you can go back to your father, get that other brother, bring him down here, and I know that you're not lying and that you're not spies, and then you'll be okay. So he puts him in jail for three days. The imprisoned one imprisons. The enslaved could enslave. The oppressed can oppress. I, I, mean, I mean, you're talking about irony here, folks. I mean, it's just, it's, just, it's, it's off, the, off the charts. So they're in jail for three days. And I, 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 I suppose in that process, Joseph is kind of reeling and thinking in his mind, what do we, what do we want to do here? So he comes up with a different plan. And he brings him out of prison and he says, look, 
One of you is going to stay here with me. You pick who he is, and Simeon's the one that gets the, the straw, okay? And, and he says, the rest of you can go back. But when you go back, and you come back later for grain, because you're going to run out of that grain that, I, that you got. It's not going to last forever. It's only going to last for a year or so. When you go back, and you come back the second time, don't you dare come back to this land without that brother that you told me that you still have. And they said, okay, okay, okay. So he brought out Simeon, tied him up before them, put Simeon in prison, and let them go on their way. So the traveling back, it's not a good time. Because he did something else. He put all their money back into their sacks along with all the food that they wanted. Um, and, and all they could think through that entire process was, what is God doing to us? Let, let me read these verses here in chapter 42 because I find them to be really, really fascinating. Look, um, look at verse 21 in chapter 42. Then he said to one another, listen to the guilt as the brothers are speaking. Surely we are being punished because our brother, because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we could not listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Reuben replies, didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? That was 20 years ago, folks. 20 years ago, and they're carrying that guilt. But you wouldn't listen to me. Now we must be accountable for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them since he was using an interpreter. So Joseph's standing there, and as they're just saying, this is all happening to us because of what we did to Joseph. And there's Joseph right there knowing exactly what they're saying. And you know what he does? He goes off and weeps. He goes off. And though he was trying to move on, he knows he can never move on because God is up to something. But he feels the weight. And he weeps. And these boys carry the weight of that guilt with them. 20 years of guilt. It's a sad story. On their way home, because he had put um, their money back in their sack, notice, notice what happens here. So they stopped at night, verse 27. One of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey. And he saw that his silver was still in the mouth, mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. The hearts sank and they turned to each other. And look at what they said, trembling. What is this that God has done to us? Do you hear that? When people are not reconciled, there is nothing but pain. Some people carry guilt. Some people, when they feel the weight of the offense, it just makes them cry. But everybody is in pain. 
So they get back, and they are playing it fully straight with their father. They get back to see their dad, and they said, Dad, this did not go well. We don't have Simeon with us. I mean, we got down there, and the guy said he thought we were a spy. We, we said we weren't. We, we told him that we had a father and a brother, and, and Dad, Reuben says, I got some bad news. Um, when this grain runs out and we go back, we can't go back unless we take Benjamin with us. And his dad just goes, what in the world is going on? Why did you tell him? He just, he's upset. No. Under no circumstances will Benjamin go back with you guys. I've already lost Joseph. I've already lost Simeon. I am not losing Benjamin too. And at that point, Reuben just thinks to himself, I'm not going to fight this one. We got grain for now. And he just drops it. The other thing we find when he goes back to his father... All the boys open up their bags. And in every person's bag, all the money has been returned. And the text says they were all distraught. It doesn't end very well, this first scene. It just doesn't. I mean, you get done this first scene, Jacob's upset, the boys are upset, Simeon's in prison, and Joseph's crying. Aren't you glad we didn't end it with chapter 42? The next scene takes place about a year later, and it opens up for us in chapter 43. Remember I told you there's two kind of bumps along the way? Watch what happens here, because you're going to be going like, ah, this is pretty good, and they go, oh, this is not going so well, and then it's going to go great, but, but it's, like I said, it's a little bit of a bumpy road. Chapter 43. Now the famine was still severe in the land. So when they had eaten all the grain that they had brought from Egypt, bought from Egypt, their fa- father said to them, go back and buy us a little more food. And now, not Reuben, Reuben's out of the scene. Now Judah steps up to the scene. He says, dad, dad, that guy who rules the land down there when it comes to food, getting food, he said, don't come back or we're going to be called spies. If if we go down without Benjamin, none of us are going to come back. No, no, Benjamin has to go with us. No way Benjamin's going to go with you because I'm not going to lose another son and you're not going to do this to me. Dad, then we die all here together because there's no more grain. And somehow then in the midst of all that, Jacob kind of just resigns to the whole thing. And he says, go, and if I am bereaved... I am bereaved. Get out of here. Not quite, but that's kind of what he's saying. And they go. But they have a little strategy. Because the problem is they still have the money from the first trip that was put back in their bags. So Jacob says, look, this is what you're going to do. When you go back, you take that money and you take more money to buy the grain this time and you take some gifts for this guy. Okay? Okay? I mean, we're just going to pour it on. And you get back there and you say, we do not know how that money got back in our sack. We didn't put it there. Here it is. Here's more money. And by the way, here's some gifts for you too. So, I mean, yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a good strategy. So they come back. And when Joseph sees them coming, he tells his servant, he says, uh, go grab them. 
before they actually see me and just take them directly to my house. Now, how would you feel if, if, if that's where they moved you, the first thing they did? You would feel the way they felt, which was scared to death. Oh, no. I mean, he's taking us right to the house. We are in a heap of trouble. Like, what is going on here? So it says, and they, they come and they talk to a servant before they even go into the house, and they just spill the beans. They say, look, 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 look. Um, we, we didn't put the money back in. and I mean, we don't know how it got there, but it's there, but you can have it. And, you know, they're just kind of, kind of just pour it out. The servant says, hey, hey, hey. It's okay. It's okay because I'm looking at the books and it says that you paid in full. Maybe God put that back in your sacks. That's what a lost pagan Egyptian servant says to the men. Now, come on in. Let's get your feet washed. Get you looking good. Get all ready because Joseph's coming at noon for lunch. So they get in there and they lay out all their gifts and man, they got it all ready to go. They, they, they are set. And with that in mind, look over in chapter 43 and let's pick up there in verse uh, 15. Is that where I want to pick up? No, no, I'm sorry. Let's pick up in verse 26. When Joseph came home, they presented to him the gifts that they had brought into the house. So all the gifts, not just the money, but gifts on top. because they, they wanted to, And they bowed down before him to the ground. How many times are they doing that? Like that dream thing just comes up again and again. And he asked them how they were, and they said, and then said, how is your aged father you told me about? Is he still living? They replied, your servant, our father, is still alive and well. And they bowed down, prostrating themselves before him. As he looked about and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, he asked, is this your youngest brother, the, the one you told me about? And he said, God be gracious to you, my son. Deeply moved at the sight of his brother, Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. He went into his private room and wept there. After he had washed his face, he came out, controlling himself, and said, let's serve the food. Do you see this? They come back, and Joseph, for the first time, sees Benjamin. And he's so overwhelmed about all the feelings he has. Here's someone who I have not seen for some 21, 22 years. He goes into a private room and he just weeps. I want to talk to him someday about all that. And when he's done, cleans up his face so it doesn't look like he's cried. And he comes back out and he says, let's eat. And they eat. Now, because he's considered Egyptian and they're considered Hebrews, and everybody knows Hebrews and Egyptians can't eat together, but he knows that, right? Because they're, they're a little bit second-class individuals. I mean, they're shepherds and all that kind of stuff. So, so they, they eat separately, but they eat 
in the same arena. So they feasted and they drank freely with him in chapter 43 ends. Remember I said kind of a good first bump? So you kind of get this part. And if you're the brothers, you're feeling a little bit good at this point. You're thinking like, I have no idea what has happened. We came back down, but we did bring Benjamin. I guess that's all he needed. And he gave us a whopping good feast. I mean, man, that was good. I guess we go home. I guess everything's okay. <laughs> what they don't realize is this is all in service to something else that Joseph is doing. So look at how chapter 44 opens. Now, Joseph gave these instructions to the steward of his house. Fill the men's sacks with as much food as they can carry and put each man's silver in the mouth of his sack. I mean, it's the same old thing, isn't it? I mean, they're getting the money back again. But here's where it's different. Then put my cup, the silver one, in the mouth of the youngest one's sack. That would be Benjamin. Along with the silver for his grain. And he did, as Joseph said. Oh, one thing I didn't tell you. That, that the text just says in passing, but I think it's really funny. You know when they were eating? The Bible says that Joseph lined them up from the oldest to the youngest. Do you think you know how intimidating that would be? You come in for this meal, okay, I want you there, you there, you there, you there, you there, you there. And when they all sit down, they go like, that's from oldest to youngest. And it says they were looking at each other going like, what is going on here? I mean, just, there's some really some funny things that are kind of inserted along the way. So that, that, that's one of them. But anyway, back to the story. So Joseph tells his servant, you take my silver cup, you put it in the bag of Benjamin, and you let them go. And they let him go. And they let them go, so they were just kind of outside of the outskirts of the city. And then he looked at his servants, and he said, go get them, boys. And when you get there, I want you to say to them, how could you return evil for good? To what has happened here. I was gracious to you. And you stole my precious silver cup. And that's exactly what he does. He goes and when he gets there he says. You ungrateful people. You stole the silver. Special silver cup of Joseph himself. And, and you know what the brothers say? Because they, they know that didn't happen. They look and they say. If you find it in anybody's bag. You can kill all of us. We'll die if we were involved in something like that. And the servant says, no, tone down, pal. No, no, no. But the person who has it, he's going to become a slave. The others, not so. But so, so you have this stuff going back and forth. And so what happens? It says they start opening their bag from the oldest to the youngest. And, you know, and with each one, they're going like, although they're looking, they're going, the money's in there again. Yeah, but not the silver cup. Shoot, right? And they go all the way down. And they finally come to Benjamin, and they open up Benjamin's, and there's a silver cup. And the Bible says that all of the brothers rent their clothes. Judah, Judah had promised on his very name that he would bring Benjamin back. And so they're ushered back into the presence of Joseph. 
And I want to read this because this is really powerful. Look at verse um, 14. Joseph was still in the house when Judah and his brothers came in and they threw themselves to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, Why is this that you, what is this that you have done? Do you not know that a man like me can find things out by divination? What can we say to my Lord, Judah replied. What can we say? How can we prove ourselves innocent? God has uncovered your servant's guilt. We are now my Lord's slaves, we ourselves, and the one who was found to have the cup. But this is what I want you to realize. This is very, very important. Judah's speech is a turning point. Because Joseph had this ongoing question that he just didn't fully understand. He didn't know how the brothers would respond. It was this. What would my brothers do with the favored son? Right? He knew what they had done to him. Would they repeat that with Benjamin? And one of the interesting things here, let me tell you what Judah is not saying. Judah is not saying here in verse 16. Judah is not saying, well, you caught us. We were all trying to steal your silver. No. What he's saying here, he's just saying it directly to Joseph. Joseph, you don't even know, or he doesn't know he's Joseph, but ruler, you don't even know exactly what's going on here. But my ten brothers, separating them from Benjamin, my ten brothers, we all stand guilty before God for what we have done to a brother 20-some years ago. And in that moment, he is publicly confessing their sin. Do you see that? Joseph looks and says, no. No, you all can go and only the youngest will stay with me as a slave because the silver was found in his bag. So you all can go. And that is the perfect scenario to answer the question. What will they do with the favored son? Do you know what they could have done? They could have left. Right? Gone home and told their dad, hey, lost Benjamin, we got Simeon back. One out of two is not bad. Or, or something. But that's not what they do. Can I read for you what Judah says now? Do, do, do you remember what they did to Joseph? They sold Joseph and they said, we have to ch- come up with a story for our dad. We'll say he died and dad will grieve, but we would rather live with the grief of our father than live in the presence of Joseph. That's what they had said. And in this text, everything gets reversed. Listen to what Ju- uh, uh, Judah says here. Sorry, let me just go to the passage. Um, Verse 18. 
Then Judah went up to him and said, Pardon your servant, my Lord. Let me speak a word to my Lord. Do not be angry with your servant, though you are equal to Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servants, Do you have a father or a brother? And, and we answered, we have an aged father, and, and there is a young son born to him to his old age. His brother is dead, because he thought Joseph was dead, so I mean, you know. Well, and he's the only one of his mother's sons left, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me so I can see him for myself. And we said to my Lord, the boy cannot leave. Uh, the boy cannot leave his father. If he leaves him, his father will die. But you told your servants, unless your youngest brother come down with you, you will not see my face. A and when we went back to your servant, my father, we told him what my Lord had said. Then our father said, go back and buy a little bread. But, but we said, we, we can't go. Uh, only if our younger brother is with us can we go. We cannot see the man's face unless our younger brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said, you know that my wife bore me two sons. One of them went away from me, and I said, he has surely been torn to pieces, and I have not seen him since. If you take this one from me too and harm comes to him, you will bring my gray head down to the grave in misery. So now, if the boy is not with us when I go back to your servant, my father, and if my father, whose life is closely bound up with this boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. Your servant guaranteed the boy's safety to my father. I said, if I do not bring him back, I will bear the blame before you, my father, all of my life. Now then, please, let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy. And let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come on my father. Do you hear a changed man? He was the one that said, let's get a couple bucks off of Joseph and sell him to the Ishmaelites down to Egypt. That was his idea. Dad'll get over it. Dad never got over it. And Judah says, Take me and let my brother go free. And in that moment, Joseph knew the heart of his brothers, didn't he? He was in a precarious position before that because in his position, he didn't know if he could find out the truth. He now knows the truth. Because you really can't have reconciliation with honesty and truth anyway, can you? And now we have the reconciliation in chapter 45, 1 to 15. Let's read it. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants. And he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Do you feel the emotion in this moment? 
Get them out. Get them out. Go. And he just, what do you think it is? I mean, Judy's thinking, man, I didn't know it was that good of a speech. <laughs> I mean, he, doesn't, he has no idea what he's just said to his brother. He's just going like, we're either in a heap of trouble. I mean, what, what, they, they, don't, they don't know, right? Verse 3, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? Well, they had already answered that, but it was such a burden of his heart. He just, he just asked it again. But his brothers were not able to answer because they were terrified at his presence. Can you imagine? I mean, they're just, he's thinking like, I'm hoping he takes me as a slave and lets Benjamin go. And out, I'm Joseph. What do you say? Like, they didn't say anything. I mean, they're they're, they're totally shocked. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. And and I I don't know this one, folks. Some scholars have argued. I'm not sure on this one. But it may be that he made that expression, come close to me, because he was going to reveal that he had been circumcised as proof of the fact that he was their brother. Don't know that for sure. Perhaps he was just saying, come closer. Anyway, when they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Now, do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. How could you possibly say that, Joseph? Is he denying the fact that they were culpable for their sin against him? Nope. You guys sold me in Egypt. But don't be concerned about it. You're like, this feels like a disconnect. They're culpable, right? Mm Mm-hmm. But there's something larger. So look at what he says. Don't be distressed or angry because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there has been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household, and ruler of all Egypt. Now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and don't delay. If there was no God, there would be no reconciliation with this family. Do you realize that? But Joseph who had tried to kind of put things on the back burner for 20 years. God has made me forget my family. I'm moving on. Could not really move on. And when they come in this midst of need, all of a sudden everything comes together. And what he sees is a sovereign God who doesn't justify the act which is culpable and wrong. 
So God is not behind the act in the sense that he's committing it with, for, for, for reasons of malice. No, no. God is over the act and working in such a way so that the end result is putting Joseph exactly where he needs to be so that he could save a family and save a nation through whom a Messiah would come and the world could be changed. Do you see that? This wasn't any old family. This was the family through which God would bless the world. So go back and tell my father and then bring him back here, right? It's the whole story. And then look at how it, the ultimate resolution comes. And Tim, Tim, Tim and I were talking about this last night, thinking like, boy, wouldn't you love to know what this was all about? Look down at verse 14. After he says that, tell my father this good news, verse 14. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept. And Benjamin embraced him weeping. And he kissed all of his brothers and wept over them. Afterwards, his brothers talked with him. Do you remember how they responded to him back in chapter 37? Not a kind word. But after this reconciliation and this embrace, the Bible says they talked. Wouldn't you love to hear that conversation? So what's the point? As I look back over this story, and I think about the road to reconciliation, I find that when there is no reconciliation, there is only pain. There is pain as I think about this relationship. There is guilt as I think about where I stand before God. There is nothing but pain. But the road to reconciliation from the offender always requires repentance, doesn't it? And when Judah said publicly, we are guilty before God for what we have done. He's owning his sin. And when he looks at Joseph and says, take me instead, there is this desire within not to repeat the acts of the past. Isn't that what repentance entails? God, it's my sin against this person and by your grace, I pray I never do it again. And from Joseph's perspective, the ultimate motivation for forgiveness is always God. Yes, in Matthew 18, it can be how much he's forgiven us, and that's an incredible story. But in this story, it's the fact that whatever comes into my life from people that hurt me and offend me, it will never keep God from being God and using me in ways that only God can do, and I can rest in that. Because when I've been offended, I'm afraid I'm going to lose something. Aren't you? But if there's a sovereign God, it doesn't mean it's easy. There's pain. There's all those kinds of things. But God is always up to something in our lives. There cannot be reconciliation if there's not repentance. There can't be reconciliation if there isn't forgiveness. And there can't be any of those things 
ultimately in a way that really is meaningful unless it's done in the presence of God himself. Do you see? Romans 8.28 is not merely a couple words that Paul pens. When he says, God works all things together for his good, Joseph believed that. And so can we. Folks, there's a myriad of applications, aren't there? And I don't know who God may be putting on your mind. But if somebody is passing through your mind right now, perhaps it's the Spirit of God that's allowing that person to be brought to your mind at this point. And all I can say is, will you at least pray about it? And if you need help and wisdom on how to approach this one that is offended, then talk to somebody about it. But don't just leave it alone. Because it only brings pain. But I would argue that there's all kinds of application for our nuclear families, but that the ultimate application is the church of Jesus Christ. Do you know why? Because Joseph's family, Israel's family, would become the nation through which God would bless the world. And if they can't begin to live out reconciliation, who will? Do you know we're a family? We're brothers and sisters. And could it be that even within our own body, there's certain people you look at, you say, I wish they would leave. They're just such a pain. I had that rub with them. It's not right. It's not right. So whichever side you find yourself on, God is a reconciling God. And if the church is reconciled, It becomes this incredible light to the world around us about the way humanity is supposed to work. It is. We are the family. We are the royal priesthood where God wants to do the work first and foremost. So if God is passing somebody across your mind now that's connected to this body, don't run from that, folks. We're going to be doing communion in just a few moments. And I've often thought that people misread 1 Corinthians 11. You know what a lot of people do with 1 Corinthians 11? I, th- this is how I grew up. We, don't, we, we try not to do it that way here, which is good. But you know where in 1 Corinthians 11 it says, He who eats and drinks unworthily will eat and drink judgment to himself. And I used to think as a young Christian, because communion is only for Christians. So if you're here and you're not a believer, don't partake. But if you're a Christian, I used to think as a young Christian, man, think, Piner, if you put that bread in your mouth and you had one sin that you forgot to confess, you may get by a car this afternoon and be dead. So be honest with you, communion was not a real pleasant experience for me growing up. Because I'm always thinking, like, did I miss one? You, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it just it really it made me really nervous. But do you know what's happening there in the context? If you read the context, 
You've got wealthy people at Corinth, and you've got poor people in Corinth, and they're getting together for a meal within which they're doing a Lord's Supper, and the, the rich are excluding the poor. You guys go out there. We're going to eat, and they're eating so much, they're getting they're gluttons, and they're getting nothing, and then they're doing the Lord's Supper. And Paul says, don't do it then. Because when you live out the Lord's Supper like that, you are doing it unworthily. Because you're making a mockery of the fact that you are one united body who is partaking and remembering what Christ has done, not for me merely, but for us. And it makes a mockery of communion when we discount one another. I mean, that's what's going on in 1 Corinthians 11. We do it in such a way that I take that bread and drink that cup and I can look out and I can say, Carmelo is my brother. And we're in relationship. We're in a good relationship. Tim is my brother. Kathy is my sister. Dave is my brother. Do you see? Even Willie back there. You know? Do you see? That's what it's about. So I read this passage, and this passage at the end of the day with its primary application is about us as God's people. We don't allow things to separate us. We come together as his people. We represent that in the way we do communion. And we go out to the world and we say, God can do this with all relationships. Do you see? And it's only because of the size of our God. Is he that big that he rules over all? Father, these stories hit home. It's like surgery, Lord, it hurts good. It, it hurts because we see ourselves, but it's good because we see you. A sovereign God who is so actively at work in our lives through the circumstances, bringing us to the place where we have to say, either I repent or I forgive. Lord, would you do that among us? Those who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, who claim his name, who call one another brother and sister. Father, do it so that we might be a blessing to the world that you want to reach and might glorify your name. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.